Welcome back to The Reeducation. Today's show is a special one. My guest is the great Dan Carlin, the host of Hardcore History, Hardcore History Addendum, and Common Sense, and also the author of The End is Always Near. His program brings history to life for millions of listeners because he approaches the subject not as a professional historian, but as an intellectual journalist. He grapples with the drama of history and its complexities and mysteries. Today, we discussed what America owes to the Roman Republic and what lessons she can learn from the Republic's demise. Fathers, fathers. Yeah. And from our fathers, 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 fathers. Yeah, all right, Sam, don't labor the point. And what have they ever given us in return? The aqueduct. What? The aqueduct. Oh, yeah, yeah, they did give us that. Uh, that's true, yeah. And the sanitation. Oh, yeah, the sanitation, man. Do you remember what the city used to be like? Yeah, all right, I'll grant you, the aqueduct and the sanitation are two things the Romans have done. And the roads. Well, yeah, obviously yeah. the roads. I mean, the roads go without saying, don't they? But apart from the sanitation, the aqueduct, and the roads... Irrigation. Medicine. Yeah. Education. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, all right, fair enough. And the wine. Yeah, yeah, that's something we've really misread the Romans left. <laughs> Public baths. And it's safe to walk in the streets at night now, Reg. Yeah, they certainly know how to keep order. Let's face it, the only ones who could in a place like this. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but apart from the sanitation, the medicine, education, wine, public order, irrigation, road, the fresh water system and public health, what have the Romans ever done for us? Brought peace? Oh, peace! Shut up! We just heard one of my favorite bits from Monty Python's Life of Brian. In the scene, John Cleese, playing leader of the People's Front of Judea, not to be confused, of course, with the Judean People's Front, captures a paradox. On the one hand, in the ancient world, Rome was a marvel. Its architecture, trade routes, literature, and technology were superior to any of the alternatives at the time. And yet the Romans were also monsters. The same civilization that invented aqueducts also routinely crucified political prisoners, enslaved whole peoples, slaughtered their enemies on a mass scale, and eventually lost the discipline and honor we associate with its republic as it became a vast and decadent empire. Now, Rome is not just a fascinating civilization whose history has been the inspiration for dramatists from Shakespeare to George R. R. Martin. Rome, and particularly the Roman Republic, was both a source of emulation and a cautionary tale for the founders of the American Republic. We see its influence all over their generation. John Adams, our second president, is said to have modeled his life on the great lawyer and orator Cicero, one of the primary authors of the arguments against the U.S. Constitution, known as the Anti-Federalist Papers, wrote under the pseudonym Cato. Cato the Younger was revered for his uncorruptible character and steadfast opposition to the rise of Rome's first emperor, Julius Caesar. George Washington had his troops watch at Valley Forge a play by Joseph Addison based on Cato's life. We see the influences on our money. The Latin phrase, e pluribus unum, adorns our dollar bill. We call the upper house of Congress a senate, as the Romans themselves did. American cities like Seneca or Cincinnati are named for Roman patricians. 
Here is the journalist and author Tom Rex in 2020 explaining how George Washington modeled himself on the great Roman general Cincinnatus. I recommend his book from that year, First Principles, on the Roman and Greek influences on the American founding. There are two great Roman influences on Washington as a general. The first, as you say, is Cincinnatus, the Roman general who heard of a threat to Rome while he was at his plow. Um, and according to the myth, left his plow, went and put down this rebellion by a local city-state in 16 days, and then returned to his plow. And uh, Washington quite consciously modeled himself on Cincinnatus, in part because they had the example of the English Civil War before them, just 100 years earlier, 120 years earlier. And Washington wanted to make it clear he was not going to be a Caesar and take over civil power or a Cromwell. Cromwell was this recent example to them of what happens when you throw off a monarchy and try to establish a republic. And as that is, you know, we know, Cromwell basically establishes a new monarchy. Now, if you think about it, for a long time, that ideal of Cincinnati, the general who relinquishes his power after the war is won, is an ideal for American statesmen, for a lot of our history at least. Initially, it was considered undignified to even outwardly campaign for the presidencies. There were presidential campaigns, of course, but not in the modern sense, where you sort of see these whistle-stop tours and things like that. And until fairly recently, aspiring presidents did not want to be seen as wanting the top job too desperately. Better to be asked by the party than to seek it out. For an example of this, look at Dwight D. Eisenhower after World War II in 1952. He was courted by both parties as when he was president of Columbia University. Now, Rome did not just loom large as a model for our founders. The history of the Roman Republic was also studied so that America might avoid its mistakes. So it's worth lingering for a moment on how Rome lost its republic. I recommend Dan Carlin's great series, The Death Throes of the Republic, from his website's archives. You have to pay for it, but I'm telling you, it is well worth it. And I won't attempt to go into the majestic detail of the several-hour series that Carlin does on the end of the Roman Republic. But to summarize, my view is that Rome began its decline as Rome's factions within its patrician class began to justify violations of past norms to address what was perceived as the greater threat in the moment. Kind of norm violation spiral ensued. As I talked about in an earlier episode, it starts with Tiberius Gracchus, the Roman populist and tribune who justified the impeachment of a rival tribune, which was unprecedented, because he believed that his agrarian reforms were too important to be stymied by the conservatives of the Roman Senate. He believed that his reform agenda was more important than the past practices of Roman politics. Now, because of his actions, his enemies in the Senate eventually murdered him because they believed that they were saving the Republic from a would-be king, and they wanted Rome to remain a republic. And the irony is, is that the murder of Tiberius Gracchus created a new norm in Rome where violence became normal for settling internal political disputes. It caused an unraveling, and this unraveling ultimately led to the rise of Julius Caesar 
as the old political rules were discarded. Now, this spiral of norm violation also had an effect on Roman culture. In Rome, during the Republic, their culture produced extraordinary people. Consider Marcus Attilius Regulus, a Roman consul who was a prisoner in Carthage during the Punic Wars. He was asked to travel back to Rome and make the case for Rome to accept a peace deal from the Carthaginians. He gave his word to return to Carthage after this mission. But instead of urging peace, Regulus gave his honest counsel to the Senate and urged them to keep fighting. He said the war would be won by Rome. Stay at it. Now at this point, one would think the rational decision would be to stay in Rome. But because Regulus gave his word, he returned to Carthage, where he was tortured and eventually executed. To moderns like us, that sounds insane. But think of what this tells us about the idea of Roman honor. Regulus would rather be murdered than break his word. Now, Regulus lived in the 3rd century BCE. If we fast forward to the 1st century CE, less than 400 years, we find Roman emperors like Caligula, who had people executed for his own entertainment. During its decline, Rome was ruled by weak, decadent men. And at least according to the Roman writers of this period, like Tacitus, these emperors were, in many ways, a reflection of the Roman people, or the Roman citizens, who had themselves become slaves to their appetites instead of the free men ruled by reason and fidelity to principles. Is America today on a similar path? If we take the long view, it's fair to say that the quality of American statesmen has declined over the course of our history. Our first president modeled his life, as we know, on Cincinnatus, and he, George Washington took this extraordinary step of relinquishing power after his first two terms. Our last president spread conspiracy theories about the election that he lost in order to stay in power. Was Trump an aberration? Well, even if he was, there are still other threats to our republic besides Donald Trump. I mean, consider the growth of the national security state since the end of World War II. Today, Congress doesn't even really declare war anymore, as the Constitution specifically says it should. The last four presidents have droned terrorists, sent special forces abroad, all as part of this global war on terrorism, which was technically declared on September 14th, 2001. But at the same time, we've already killed bin Laden, and it seems like it still is in many ways an endless war. The last three presidents also have sidestepped Congress with executive orders on immigration and the border wall, and most recently erasing college loan debt, which would normally, under until fairly recently in our history, be something that would have to be negotiated with the second branch of government. Now, finally, do we have a national character anymore? Something that makes us all Americans? It is a really difficult question, and it's one that I get into in the conversation with Dan Carlin. I mean, there's an argument that we never had a single national character. We had several regional characters. But regardless, today it feels like we are on the brink of at least a civil war in cyberspace, if not the real thing. Both sides of our political divide speak about the other as though they were enemies of our state. Now, we've sort of been here before with the two Red Scares in the 20th century. 
the unprecedented sort of, you know, civil unrest of the late 1960s and the 1970s, you know, it's it's not always been peaches and cream in this country. I mean, we had, you know, veterans marching on Washington after World War One, demanding higher pensions and so forth. But nonetheless, it does feel like we really are in a dangerous situation. So we may already be in a cycle of norm violations that will lead future presidents, for example, to use the vast powers of the state to go after his or her political opposition in unprecedented ways. Now, that has happened before. FDR famously, you know, ordered audits from the IRS of some of his political opponents. We know of the Watergate scandal, where at least former CIA and FBI officers were used to break into the Democratic Party's headquarters at the Watergate and so forth. But these scandals were, I guess you could say, always followed by, you know, reform. It was a cycle of scandal and reform. And we haven't had those reforms recently, and at least there's a chance that this could then become the new norm. I don't mean to suggest that the end of our republic is inevitable, but I do think it's a real danger. And this is why it's so important to study the last great republic, as the founders did, in the hope that we can learn from Rome's mistakes, so we don't repeat them. It took three generations for Rome to lose its republic. How long does America have? And I ask this question because one of the burdens of living in a free society is to accept that at the end of the day, we have some responsibility, not just some, we have responsibility for the state of our government. If we don't like it, we have to believe at least that we have the power to elect people who can change it. And that goes both ways, because if we end up losing our system of government, if we are no longer a self-governing people, if we are no longer a free society, well, that's on us as well. And at least it's something that I hope that we would study the historical precedents to make sure that we do not repeat those mistakes in the future. And now, a word from our sponsor. From the grocery store to the gas station, working families are getting hammered by rising prices. But instead of focusing on inflation, Congress is pushing anti-innovation legislation that will impose more financial burdens on working people and seniors. Their misguided agenda could cost public pension plans $109 billion. Teachers, firefighters, and nurses would pay the heaviest price. Congress needs to focus on inflation and leave American workers alone. Well, listeners, you are in for a treat. I am delighted and thrilled that the great Dan Carlin, I'm sure you know him from Hardcore History, Common Sense, Hardcore History Addendum. The End is Always Near is his book from a few years ago. And I guess you could say one of these people who I don't know, you know, personally, but has been very influential on in my intellectual development in that every time I listen to one of his episodes, I almost always come away with a book I want to read or an author I need to explore. 
And so I want to thank you, Dan Carlin, because of you, I have become a huge Will Durant fan. <laughs> and and you you know, and I think you you sort of bring history alive, not just because you're a great storyteller, but because you approach the topic journalistically and not with all the sort of airs of, you know, being a professional historian. But as you like to say, you're a fan of history, and I think that you make all of us fans of history as well. So thank you so much for coming on. That is a really, really kind introduction. Thank you so much. And and let's not disparage the historians. Where would we be without them, right? Oh, I agree. But I like your approach to it because you're not just going with the consensus latest history. You go deeper and you give us, you know, Plutarch and Livy and, you know, Will Durant, who, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, as I as I've gotten into him, I you sort of you can tell like, OK, you know, this is a little dated, but it's really valuable to get those perspectives. And that's I love it. You know, it's a different a, style, isn't it, too? It's much more readable. I have to say it's more accessible. It's less scientific. Yes. And I think you all you have a real ear for the and, and you have a, a nose for the drama in these stories, too, which I love. Yeah, I, uh, well, and I do. I, we hark, I harken back to some of that kind of stuff because I feel like there's a, a nice synthesis you can have with that. But yeah, I, that's part of the freedom that you get being a, a fan of history as opposed to a to a, a pedigreed, peer reviewed historian who has to be a lot more careful about things. A lot of the things Durant would have included Durant would have included in their history would have been really tough. I mean, a lot of it's really you know I always talk about the distinction between history as a humanity versus history as a social science. Mm-hmm. We're much more into the social science realm now, but there's a whole lot of subjects that fit into the humanities, things like language, literature, religion, and all these kinds of things, which are really hard things to quantify, prove, analyze with data. And so some of that stuff's harder, I think, for the social sciences to deal with than the wonderful stuff that we're finding out with archaeology. I think they complement each other well, but I think it's a difficult realm for modern historians to play around with things like people's religious beliefs beyond the obvious, you know, people thought this way and here's what they, but when you get into what that means, then you're then you're you're moving off into humanity realm a little bit more and a little less social science. I would agree. I I agree with that. I think there's also another issue, which is that a modern historian has to be in some ways much more of a specialist than some of the great historians from 100 years ago or 200 years ago. And there is something to be said for being an intellectual generalist. And in in this way, I mean, to pay you another compliment, you remind me very much of a late friend of mine who was a mentor is Christopher Hitchens, who was somebody who was incredibly curious and knew so many things about so many, but was not a specialist in anything. And that's the part of it, which is the ability to sort of look at, which is what I think what we're going to talk about today, the history of the fall of the Roman Republic and what it tells us about our history and to tie in other kinds of things. Whereas a lot of academics have to sort of stay in their lane. But the, you know, the, the Durants, the, the Hans Dahl Brooks, these are people who could kind of cover a much wider swath. And I really appreciate. I think you're very much in that tradition and you rely on them, too. Oh, I'm a big Hitchens fan too. Wasn't he wonderful? Don't we oh, miss him? He's wonderful. Yeah, and like, and you know, and in, in one way that you're similar is that I I used to come away from his you know salons and and encounters with him in many ways, always with like you know here are three things I got to read, and I always get that from listening to your podcast too. So, well, that's very kind. So comparing yeah. us to the greats, we all stand on the shoulders of giants. Absolutely. Right? So let's start with. It's, you, we were talking about Will Durant, who was somebody who I think almost, I, mean, I don't even think he consciously did it, but he certainly believed that there was such a thing as a na- national characteristic, characteristics of nations and peoples. And I wanted to ask you, 
it's tricky because you could get into a lot of trouble when you start going down that road. You can get into stereotypes and all kinds of things. But can we talk about a national character as a concept? And is you know, it maybe relying on like when, what, and what part of the of the nation's history you're talking about? You know, I mean, yeah, I'm actually dealing with some of that right now in some of the work that we're working on. The difference between the way a 19th century historian would have framed uh, nationalism and peoples and the soul of a, of a, of a right. nation compared to how we can deal with that now, you know, and, and I'm going to you'll have to correct me if I, if I stray off topic here, cause I no, tend no, no, to no. podcast too, but, but there's an, an element to this where, you know, when they, when you go take a historiography class, which is a class about how they do history. Right. Right? The first thing they teach you is how you have to sift through the biases of the original primary sources from the time period. But the second thing you have to do is sift through the biases of the historians who wrote about those people hundreds of years later. So a, a wonderful example would be the 19th century historians and how much they've that you have to sort of undo some of the weaving of the historical rope that they've done also. And then some would suggest that the weaving of the historical rope that we're screwing up right now ourselves with our own biases. But that was an era where nationalism and romanticism were really, really heavy things and trying to figure out where a nation's soul, like you had said, emanates from. Where's the germ of Germany? Where's the germ of France? Where's the, you know, and so that's where you get these national myths connected to historical figures. And it becomes part of, of you know, some would say that a nation needs something like that, a, a shared cultural sense of, of who we are and right. where that dates from. The problem is, and this is one of the, the things that I think is wonderful about the time that we're living in right now, because once upon a time, a historian is stuck with the sources and trying to interpret them. And it's a rather until you find the buried library of Alexandria or more ancient tablets to mm. decipher, you're kind of stuck with what you have. All of a sudden now, though, and it started, I think, with radiocarbon dating, and then you get the DNA testing, and then you get the isotope stuff that they're doing right now. All of a sudden, history has exploded. It was always this way, but it's much more now into a massive interdisciplinary effort that involve all sorts of people besides historians. One of my favorite groups are the bioarchaeologists, right? The people that will go in there and tests the bones. I'll give you an example of what I mean. There is a famous grave that they found that forever they thought was a Viking male, right? Right. And Viking is a weird term because that's there are no people called Vikings per se. You know, a Viking is a verb. It's a, it's a it's a pirate or a lurker in a fjord or something like that. So they find this this burial. It's got some swords or, or weapons in it. So they think, okay, this is a Viking male. So then they figure out through some testing rather recently that it's not a male at all. It's a female. So that changed everybody's views quickly. Oh, well, well, does that mean there were, uh, right. there were, 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 there were women Viking on Viking ships? Right? It's just an inspiration for Valkyries and all this. Well, now with I, the ice, I read recently that through isotope, I think it was isotope work, they discovered that the person's not even Scandinavian, that they're Polish probably, or from modern day Poland mm -hmm. and of a more Slavic background. Well, this changes everything. This And this is exactly what a 19th century historian would have blown their minds because that would totally screw up their whole idea that right. what you're looking at here is, is, is our national ancestors. Well, m m either it's not or your national ancestors aren't quite as, as up and down straight uh, ethnicity as you thought they were.
So I, I think we're in a period of flux right now that's actually going to overturn a lot of those 19th century ideas that connect the past to the myths and the romanticism you know, of the national mythology, for lack of a better word. What was I thinking about? Just had a line that I, I may have even written it down here. Let me see if I got it here, where it was talking about how we were screwed. Oh, oh yes. It was Chris Wickham, historian Chris Wickham was talking about the the damage that the nationalist origin myths right. had done to history and how you need to unravel the the corruption that that's put into the historical understanding the same way that the biases of the original time periods writers did. So I think you're continually trying to both put the rope together and construct the rope while unraveling all of the the threads that have gotten placed incorrectly, if that makes sense. No, it does. And what I think it's easier when you're talking about more ancient peoples. So it's easy to say that, you know, the Mongols had certain national characteristics because they relied so much on raiding weaker tribes, riding horses from a very young age, and that these created certain sorts of traits, if you will, for you know the Mongol people, and that we can maybe you know talk about certain characteristics of the Mongols. I mean, I think the problem is, is that, and you mentioned the nineteenth century, is when these ideas then curdle into justifying colonialism or trying to say that certain peoples are inferior or not capable of, you know, scientific development or things like that, which obviously this all happened, all this kind of pseudo-scientific racism that we associate with the end of the 19th century and the early 20th century can maybe be traced to some of that. But is there something that's maybe worth, you know, holding on to about the idea that there is such a thing as a national characteristic? There's a difference between, you know, Chinese, you know, Chinese civilizations that are very much based on cities with walls versus the Mongols and that they, they create different kinds of people with different values. And that's important to understand. Well, let's unravel the rope and, and take it okay. into component parts. Okay. So mm -hmm. in the 19th century, they would have said the rope included ethnicity, culture, yep. and language. I think now it's much more likely that you, you disassemble those things and say, well, I'll give, I'll give you a good example. So you mentioned the Mongols, and, and this fits for the Mongols too, but let's use the Goths instead. Okay. Goths, Ostrogoths. These were people that were, the whole time I was growing up, and certainly in Will Durant's time, and, and absolutely in Hans Delbruck's time, were considered Germans. These are Germanic peoples, right? Look at the right. names of the leaders, look at the languages they spoke, look at the gods they worship, all this kind of stuff. Well, I remember reading a book in the late 70s by Wolfram was the guy's name, and he was the first guy I encountered that ever said that the Goths were not a people the way we think of them. They weren't a, a real ethnicity because even if they had started once upon a time in modern day Denmark or southern right. Scandinavia, along the way they had picked up all sorts of peoples, right? Slavs, slaves from the Roman Empire, disaffected people all along the way. So by the time you have the great events of the 370s where the Romans are dealing with them in the, in the in the in the in the in the events that shook the Roman Empire, right? In 376, this is probably some mixed polygot people that don't resemble this Germanic ideal at all. But they might have spoken a Germanic language, so that separates the language from this ethnicity idea a little bit. And they might have had a, a pseudo-Germanic culture. They certainly had a Germanic origin myth. They thought themselves to have come from these places. But once upon a time, they wrapped that up into a nice package. Now you have to sort of disassemble it a little bit more and say, okay, 
ethnically speaking, we're probably dealing with a mixed group of people that have formed a new people, maybe even consciously, but they might have had a Germanic culture or Germanic cultural overtones. So let's talk about the Mongols in that sense, right? Right. So what the Mongols did, like all steppe peoples did, is that when they conquered, they, they either started off as small little tribal bands that would eventually form confederations which is when they became dangerous. That's what the Huns were, a, a, you know, a giant confederation of tribes when they become very dangerous. Right. But what they do is instead of always wiping out the people that they defeat, they absorb them. I read an account once that said most of the Mongols that probably broke into Europe in the famous, you know, destruction of Russia and all that were probably not ethnic Mongols at all. They were probably right. the same Turkic tribes and various ethnicities, some of them even Iranian-speaking tribes, that the Russian people had been dealing with for generations, right. but now under Mongol, you know, overlordship. So once again, you get you you get then well, out the, of the generalship of the arrow, right? <laughs> well, one of them, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And under the, and and under the Mongol military system. So whereas one of these Turkic horse archers from 100 years before might have been just fine with lax discipline. Under the Mongols, you'll get your head cut off. Now that right. changes the way you fight, right? So I think disassembling the rope of ethnicity, culture, and language helps us better see maybe what we're dealing with. And I think we also have to understand that the ethnographers of these early periods are very hard to rely on because sure. they were often really sloppy. And a lot of times, they considered to be barbar barbarians unworthy of real examination. So you could just, you know, wave your wand and just say they're barbarians. Who cares if there's Scythians or Gauls or Germans? It's all the same to us. And then you had a few that were really careful. So it's so hard to figure out, OK, when they talk about these people, who are they really talking about? Right. And it messes us up now. So, I, again, I, I cycle back to the idea that we're going to find out some great things with all this genetic testing that's coming out in the next 20, 30, 40 years, we're going to know a lot more about who these people really were. Yeah, no, and, and I'm, I'm very excited for that as well. So I want to, the reason I start with national characters, because I do think it's a really tricky thing when you really think about it, is I wanted to talk about Rome and America. And what would we consider to be America's national character? And the one thing I really, and I have to say, I attribute this in some ways to listening to hardcore history, but reading a lot of the original sources is that I have now come to the view that if you want to talk about a national characteristic for a country, you have to ask, well, at what point in the nation's history are you are you asking the question, right? Bingo. So the American character is very, very different in the 1930s than it would be in the 2020s. And sort of virtues that, that we may have, you know, sort of attributed with, with I guess, the greatest generation – are they still part of American, our, our national character? It's hard to say. And you can say the same thing about, you know, what what point in Rome are you talking about? The Roman Republic, in my view, had people of almost an, an unbelievable character. I'm thinking of the general who returned to face certain death in the First Punic War. The, I think, is Regulus, the, the general, who was a hostage you know, <laughs> you know, who kept his word because that was part of what it meant to be a Roman. But if you go further on, especially once they become an empire, you know, the leaders of Rome have very low character. And so so I wanted to kind of get that sense of you. So what, let's start with America. I mean, is there, are there certain sort of enduring traits about our country, our people, that we would say is part of the American national character? I think you hit the nail on the head when you talked about change. And, and, and right. another way to put it would be evolution. 
because you could pick all kinds of different. I mean, first of all, a great a great time to look at is America before it was America. So go to say 1715, mm. right? So we're still a couple of generations away from the revolution. What is America then? Is it French? Is it English? Is it Spanish? Is it Native American? And it, what, you know, and, it, and that might be a regionalism. There's a great book and I can't, the name escapes me at the moment, but the entire book's premise is that we're really five, six, seven different countries right. based on regionalism. And that if you actually break it down, you can explain a lot about things like voting patterns, some of the disagreements that the country has with itself based upon the individual histories, which are different for each of these regions. So I would suggest that what you say is right, that I think there's a national myth that you used to try, especially in the earlier eras, that you used to try to to form a bunch of different groups of people into a cohesive body. So the Romans are a wonderful example if we want to look at ethnicity. What was yeah. the Roman ethnicity, right? Well, Rome was a city-state when it got started. So the, the, the difference if you did DNA testing today between a Roman and a person who was from Etruria, an Etruscan, you might not be able to tell the difference. They're having the same problem trying to figure out who was Viking, you know, Danish, and who right. was Saxon in, in early England because the DNA is pretty darn similar, if not identical. So it's really not an ethnic question. But if you went to Rome and said, well, who are the Romans? They might talk about ethnicity and race and believe it, but they kept changing over time by expanding and incorporating peoples who were definitely not Italian even. I mean, at a certain point, you know, your rulers of Rome are going to be from modern day France or modern day Spain right. or modern day North Africa. And yet they all have to sort of be processed through the machine. And on the other end, by the time the conveyor belt gets you through there, you're a Roman at the end. But what it takes during the conversion process to get you from here to there, I think changes over the course of the Republic and the empire. That's a very, that's a great way to Yeah, no, no, it does make a lot of sense. I mean, well, let's, let's dwell a little bit on Rome. Why do you think you had these extraordinary people in Rome. Even I'm not when I say that, I want to make it very clear. There were Roman generals who did horrible things that we would consider to be awful war crimes. I'm not, but I'm saying that there is certain kind, it's a level of kind of character, a sense of honor among maybe a two or three hundred year stretch in Roman history that produces people that is like a Cato the Younger, for example, that. I don't know. I mean, it's. I think it. I think it is exceptional. I don't know if. I mean, I. 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 I'm. I. I. You know. I. 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 Want to be humble in that I don't know the history of everything, but it seems like. What is it about that that it's sort of a, you had a, a period of years where you produced these, inc these extraordinary Roman citizens as I. You know, you can just talk about the in the history of great military generals. You know, arguably Roman Rome has maybe five of them. You know, if you said a top 10 or top 20 or something like that. Well, OK, again, there's a lot of ways to break this down. Part, part of it is you're going to have a lot of great military generals in the history books if you're if you're commanding a great military force. Right. Fair enough. Yeah. Yes. OK, good. A lot harder to have, you know, generals from a country that doesn't have a good military. But here's what I would suggest. I, I would suggest that this falls into a category of things that I've been wondering about my whole life. And a historian like Durant or a historian like we could we could look at Delbrook a little differently later because he's got some fascinating ideas. But a historian from Durant's era, like Charles Oman, somebody like they would have no problem talking about something like toughness. Right. But what the heck is toughness? 
right? I mean, this is exactly the kind of thing that would drive a modern historian crazy and, and a peer review panel up the wall, because how on earth would you ever even make a case of what toughness was? So I always use the Spartans as an example. Because, of course, the reason that the Spartans have the reputation they have is because that's what the other Greeks thought of them. Right. But, you, but how would a Roman have thought? I mean, how would they have compared to the Romans? Maybe the Spartans were only tough compared to other Greeks. I mean, what's the criterion, right? The criterion I don't know. If you, if you throw babies that you consider to be unfit off of a cliff, you know, I mean, that's pretty tough, right? That's a hard one, too, because every time you make a statement, I mean, me, every time I make a statement yeah. like that, there's, there's always pushback. I mean, like the Carthaginians sacrificing babies to Baal, you know, I mean, this is all tough stuff to work around on whether it was true or not, or whether these are, are slurs by, by later sure. writers who didn't like them. You just, it's hard to know, but this toughness thing seems to me to be an interesting question. And like I said, somebody like Durant would have, if Durant was writing today with his style and trying to catalog you know, American history from, let's just say, 1850 to 1980, he's going to bring toughness into it somehow, right? It's the same thing when someone says the greatest generation, which is a term I hate because I'm sure the greatest generation's parents thought they were a bunch of slackers, just like every parent's generation thinks the next generation. <laughs> but I, I think that someone like Durant would have had a much easier time saying, well, you know, as toughness declined and morals waned and, you know, there, and, and by the way, a, a, a point of view and, and an approach that would be very popular among some Americans today to look at it that way. But there's no way to measure something it's like the that. wooden and shoes, silk slippers of Voltaire that you. Right, like and, and, and it's a weird thing, because if you say something like I asked a question once about whether or not we could beat our grandparents in a war if we were all using the same equipment and everything else. And the whole point to saying that was not just to talk about toughness in terms of your ability to suck up damage and casualties and pain and suffering, but also your ability to inflict it. Right. I yes. mean, I, I don't know if and, and again, may, maybe this is Pollyanna ish, because I think once a war gets going for a while and somebody does bad things to you, I think we we find what we're capable of. But I'm not sure that we would do all the same horrible things today that were required for some of these earlier wars. That's a part of toughness, too. And one might make the case that those are the virtues that allow us to think of ourselves as more evolved more advanced, more merciful, more understanding, better people if we were going to look at this in a turn-the-other-cheek sort of a religious sense. So I think it's a pros and cons thing. I think if you look at Hans Delbruck, mm -hmm. he, his, his thing was always that civilization itself weakens people in a warrior sense, and that the reason to have organization in the military is to compensate for the fact that if you're fighting he would call them uncivilized and not a good term today. If you're fighting uncivilized peoples, they're naturally tougher because of the lives they lead every day. And so you have to have better organization, better generalship, better equipment, better logistics, all those things as a way to offset what he would call the natural superiorities of the uncivilized man. So I would suggest that that if if Durant said that the country's not as tough as it used to be because we've lost some of those, you know, greatest generation toughness virtues, it's possible we've gained things in trade for that, if that makes sense. Right. No, Did that, that does. Question, my friend. Did that even? No, no, no. It's it's great. I, I, but I want to. I want to. Question today. <laughs> I want to return to Rome. To Rome, because there's something about well, that gets to like I don't know. I guess I would call it a Roman virtue, although there's another side to this, and you'll probably point it out, which is that 
I, as somebody who's covered the U.S. military and I've, you know, embedded with forces in Iraq and I've, you know, also covered it independently, one thing that you notice, and it's been, a, I think, a complaint in the United States, you know, it goes back, you know, to probably before the Vietnam War, but, you know, it's like that old Creedence Clearwater Revival song, I Ain't No Senator's Son, and that our elites don't tend to fight wars in America, but in Rome, where, you know, combat was in my clearly more perilous and there were all kinds of like famous roman generals and consuls who would go off to war and die and i guess you could say right now i mean the in the war in ukraine there were a number of russian generals who died in the first you know few first month or so of the conflict but it's very rare today but in rome there was it was a people it was a big thing about you know that's who what it meant to be a patrician was that you you wanted to go into battle and lead these forces and you see that more it seems in the ancient world or am i wrong on this you know that, that's why that's, that's an example of kind of like a, what's so interesting about rome is they created a culture where the elites wanted to risk their lives in ancient warfare which was horrendous and scary Okay, so there's a devil's advocate side to my character that comes out when it, and it doesn't matter okay. what it is good. So, so take this for what it's worth. There's a case one could make. I'm not making it. I'm just saying you could make a case mm-hmm. that, that you could you could ascribe an almost venal right. motivation for doing some of that stuff because in order to pro, especially you know we we should separate the Roman Republic from the Roman Empire as they're two really different yes. things. In the Roman Republic, the way one became a person who could rise through the ranks, and that was so important. If we want to talk about what the Roman culture sort of fostered, it was this competitiveness among its elites. Think about think about a king of the mountain kind of game. Right. Or crabs in a barrel or any of those any of those yeah. wonderful sort of mental images. But in order to achieve that top goal, there were certain positions that you had to get to first, right? It's almost like going up through the ranks in the military. And some of those positions required military generalship as part of the gig. It would almost be as though we required our elected officials today to have military service to even be considered for the job. And so then you might be able to then separate whether or not these were true patriots who wanted to go serve in the military, blah, 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 or whether or not they were just grasping, greedy, corrupt politicians, and this is the only way you get the gig, right? So, I mean, the, so so there are different ways one might look at it, but but you are not going to get the job of a Roman consul, and they had two of those, right? But you could think of that as the chief executive in the Roman system. You weren't going to get that job through most of the Roman Republic without having some significant military experience as part of the gig. So whatever motivations you had, it might all tie together with wanting to be the biggest, best, mm-hmm. highest achiever. And it was sort of a requirement for the job. Now, we could tie that in to culture. As you said, you know, did the Romans have this culture? Well, that's part of the culture, right? I mean, if, if you say, well, we want our military elites to really understand warfare, and the only way you really understand warfare is by serving. Well, then saying the only way you achieve the highest office in Rome is by serving, you tie all those motivations together, don't you? Yeah. But w- what strikes me is that in these moments of peril for the for the for the Roman Republic at least, you did see a number of elites who had great lives back then willing to risk their lives in combat. And I don't think you would see that today in America. If you were to making a comparison between America and its apex and everything like that in Rome, 
I mean, yes, we've had plenty of presidents who who were like Eisenhower was a great general and who served honorably in the military and had re- and experienced real danger. But for the most part, I think it's one of our flaws is that the elites tend not to face the same risks in American wars as kind of the regular folks. Well, let's look at let's look at when that changed, too. And, and I don't know that yeah. we can describe this as 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 you know, you had talked about the evolution of the United States yeah. over time. I'm not sure this is an enduring virtue, but we can certainly call it a 20th century one. So let's okay. look at the difference between the Second World War and the First World War and people serving versus something like Vietnam. So in the Second World War, people in the United States that were not in the military were almost embarrassed by it. Sure. Right. In the First World War, the women would walk around in Britain with white feathers that they right. would stick into the into the lapels of men that they found that seemed to be of an age where they should be in the military, but were walking around London instead as a way to shame them. So in a sense, like we talked about, the Roman system required you to do these things if you wanted to have a political gig down the road. In this situation, it was it was you would be shamed. If you had not served in an era where basically every able-bodied person was serving. So then you get to the Vietnam War where it's different, where Mm -hmm. all of a sudden it's totally okay because it's a nasty war or they would have said an immoral war. Some people at the time, you can claim all kinds of exemptions. You could go in there and address to the recruiting office. You could say that you are a homosexual. You could say that you conscientious objector. You could be Muhammad Ali and said the Viet Cong never called me the N-word. You could have bone spurs. There's any, and nobody, I mean, they might've hammered you for it at the time, but all those people are around and successful today, right? They're not even ashamed to admit they didn't fight. I'm okay with that. But if you had told somebody in the first world war or the second world war that they might've been aghast, it wouldn't have been socially acceptable. So if you want to talk about how things change and you're specifically mentioning, you know, elected officials who don't serve, well, that really started happening in large numbers in the 1960s during the Vietnam War. And I would make a case that in 64, 65, it was different even than 68, 69, 70. There was some sort of a transition right there, you know? Well, that's okay. So now that, now, now that we're talking about sort of Rome and America, I wanted to get your thoughts on the founding fathers were fascinated by the Roman Republic. And I mean, we know this from the Federalist Papers. They, you know, they, they, they use the, you know, great Romans as, you know, as pseudonyms like Cato. John Adams was obsessed with Cicero. He wanted to, he modeled his life, you could argue, on Cicero. And yet at the same time, it seemed like they were, were they interested in Rome as a cautionary tale? Or were they interested in Rome as a source of emulation or maybe a little bit of both? Both. Absolutely both. Because because the mm-hmm. thing is, is when you're building and, and I think, I, you know, I'm an admirer of the founders, too. And I, I use that as yeah. a as catch all term, because once we un, un, untangle that rope, too, it gets a little more. Complicated. <laughs> yes. talking. I mean, Jefferson's one of my favorite characters. But boy, you talk about a guy with so many sides. And if you're deciding that you're going to go into a room and I, I often think about what a task it was to send these people into a room and say, come out with a government. Right. Come out with a design. <laughs> right. What do you do? I mean, I think the first thing and I'm just guessing here is go, OK, well, what do we have in the past and who's tried this before? And and if you're talking about 
you know, previous governments that are based on the will of the people or elections or whatnot. Remember, these people came from a monarchy, but also from a monarchy that had been chastened and weakened by things like the Glorious Revolution. And, you know, that's the part I always try to tell Americans is that the United States has a history before there was a United States. And yes. And, and things like the Glorious Revolution was a very big deal to people like Washington and Adams and Jefferson, right, who were British citizens when they were born. So they would look at those kind of things and they didn't want a king. So if you don't want a king, well, that was one of the big things the Romans never wanted. Right. That yes. was the worst thing you could describe to be was a king. So you use that as a template. They didn't like Athens because they saw the dangers of of. Well, you know, Athens. Athens is always called the first democracy, but it wasn't a democracy for very long. So we should say that. But when it was, it was a democracy of the sort we haven't seen where they would literally vote on policy decisions. Right. Yeah. Now, it, it was it was not the whole public who voted. It was just a small percentage. But those people, you know, you could say if we were going to go into the Vietnam War, you would say something like, OK, should we put troops on the ground in Vietnam? Let's have a vote. And the <laughs> founders like that idea either, nor did they think in a country as large as the U.S. was back then even when it was just 13 colonies, it was enormous by old European standards. Was something like that even practical? So the, the idea of a representative republic sounded great. But then who do you use as a template or a model? And then right. once you find that template and model, do you adopt it wholesale as it was? Or do you try to look at what went wrong with it and correct that? And so that's what I think they did. And, and like you were talking about, like the Federalist Papers talk about in the deliberations, they tried to find a model, tried to find what seemed applicable to their situation, and then tried to figure out what went wrong. I mean, were there poison pills? Were there, what would you, what would you say? Were there tragic flaws, you know, yes. built in the model that did not become apparent until they were manifest? And the advantage a guy like, Madison has, for example, in drawing up a new system is he can look at that and say, aha, had the Romans only known that this would have been such a problem, they would have fixed it themselves, but they didn't know until it was too late. But we can look at their example and put in something that allows us to avoid that mistake. The problem is, of course, is that we're going to have our own poison pills and our own tragic flaws that don't become yes. apparent until, until we've lived them for a while. So, so I think the answer to your question is the one you came up with. I think it's both. That's a that that is that is and now now I now I want to ask a very hard question and you may not have an answer and I certainly don't I I don't know I I think about this a lot. Is it how how has the experience of these founding fathers and some of our the, you know the, our national charter the Declaration of Independence the Constitution and these ideas that that you know you could say philosophers and journalists and types you know we care a lot about it but how much has that affected our national character or national culture? Is it something that all America, you can, can you draw a line between, you know, the 1776 generation and today and say, you know, these have been enduring ideas that have animated American culture or, you know, it, or is that going too far? If you hadn't taken it and wrapped it back to the culture, the, 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 the national character question yeah. I was going. So it, I, I do think that's an, a natural, a natural tie-in. I, I think I think that especially in the 19th century way of looking at this early 20th century way of looking at this rallying around the things that and I'm using air quotes with my fingers, even if you can't mm -hmm. see it, that unite Americans around it, you know, the e pluribus uh, unum yes. kind of an idea. Right. What are the things that make us Americans? And especially since we're we're not, you, you know, how do I put this? There are people who are people because they've always been people. 
right? They don't have to have a constitution. They don't have to have something that naturally unites them. They've been united since before history. You know, some of these people have been people for a very long time. The Chinese that you mentioned are a perfect example. Chinese civilization goes back so far, especially if you're in the Han interior core of it. I don't, I don't even know. I mean, you, you, can, you can say it's the communist revolution era, or you can talk about it after the emperor fell, but really the Chinese are ancient. The United States is trying to craft a country out of nothing when they start, right? What are the founding right. myths of the United States, especially once you start incorporating lots of other territories and peoples? What do you do when you're incorporating former French territories and Spanish territories? And how do you create, I mean, you certainly can't have them under the domination of the formerly English colonies of a place like Virginia or Massachusetts. So I think, I don't want to call it unique because it's not unique at all, but I think it's different than what those ancient societies that have had long civilizations that can trace their roots far back in time. And I think utilizing things like a constitution or a revolutionary, the, the revolutionary principles that motivated the breakaway from Britain to begin with, I think those seem to be like natural elements to try to foster mm -hmm. all sorts of things. George Washington can't tell a lie, chops down a cherry tree. I mean, the national myths, right? The problem is, is that those things in the same way that they try to force a standard of conduct, behavior, and beliefs on the citizenry also forms a standard of conduct, behavior, and beliefs on the society. And when the society falls short of those things, right. well, then power is diminished. So we can go back to the 1960s again. Some of the most damaging things that those who were, I think that the super patriots at the time would have called them anti-Americans, some of the most damaging arguments that the so-called anti-Americans made at the time period was to hold a mirror up to 1960s American society and say, how well are you adhering to the ideas of the Constitution and the ideas of the Revolution and the ideas of the Founding Fathers? And when neither side's adhering to them very well, well, then they lose some of their power. And then when they lose some of their power, the mythical idea of that goes away. Once upon a time, I used to be able to make arguments with people using those as my as the bedrock principles by basically right. saying, we all agree on this. So now you make your argument and you tie your argument back up to those things because it's a place that no one would disagree with. It's not that way anymore. It's almost like yes. there's a there's a virginity side to it where you can't go back once it loses its luster and it's and, and it's. And it's mythical power to to motivate, guide, inform, and and for us to use as a measuring stick for each other. It's almost like you can't you can't put the genie back in that bottle. And so I think that also plays into your your national myths question a little bit. I think it's what separated, you know, to use that term I hate so much, that greatest generation from their children who were so very different than they were. Yeah, but on the other hand. There, there was a lot of anger at the government after World War One. I. I mean, if you just read Smedley Butler, and he had a pretty large following, and yet, you know, after we, you know, after Pearl Harbor, the country almost turns on a dime and becomes the super patriots, and we stay super patriotic until the 1960s. So we had like 20, 25 years of, you know, th this kind of cohesion. But you know, I guess. I don't know, maybe you would disagree, but it seems to me that before World War II, there was, there, you know, you had the whole lost generation of people who were coming back. You had the country was filled with all these veterans who were missing limbs. You had, you know, the spread of pretty radical ideas in this country, you know. So 
is it possible maybe that we do get it back and it just kind of ebbs and flows? Well, okay, and talking off the top of my head here, so happy to be yeah. wrong, but I would suggest that maybe part of that is the d difference between something that is homegrown internally within each of us versus right. something that is top-down, encouraged by the government in a way. So, for example, there was, a, and this is this is part of that sort of, I don't know if you'd call it hidden history anymore, because there's lots of books out there if people want to read them. Yeah. But, but as the Second World War was winding down, which actually started happening in late 1943, so that's a year and a half before the war actually ends, they're already talking about what the world is going to look like when the war ends. And one of the concerns here in the United States and it's also based on some 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 form of a premise that may or may not have been true. We didn't test it, so we don't know. But there was a, a, a belief among some, a lot of economists who had the ear of the government, for example, that the war got us out of the Depression and that the massive spending was what was responsible for getting us out of that problem. And that if you turn that spigot off, we would go back to the way it was in 1938, 37, 36 God forbid, 32, the double dip year. And so the idea that you might be able to maintain wartime spending was a was a theory that was bantered around. But when the war started to end, and especially when it ended in Europe and the people that had fought in Europe reacted very negatively to the idea that they were going to be shipped now to the Pacific, right? This idea that you could continue on a wartime economy was really unpopular. But then you get the Berlin crisis, you get the Cold War, you get all that that allowed a sense of threat to be used again as a way to justify many of the things that emerged naturally in Americans before this period to emerge in a sort of propaganda is a strong word. But as you know, you talked about how different things were in post First World War United States, post Second World War United States. It's much more night and day. And we yeah. prosecuted, we prosecuted people who thought too differently in the post Second World War era. I mean, you know, if you were if you were a communist, you couldn't get a job. If you were a socialist, right. you might be able to get a job. We executed the Rosenbergs. I mean, this was an era where if you didn't already have the homegrown feelings like the kind we're talking about here, it didn't matter. They were codified. Right. And they, they, right. that's what that's. And by the way, both of the Red Scare eras followed both of the world wars. I mean, the first Red Scare was what, 1919. So that's a year after right. the first World war. Second Red Scare era is right after the second world war. Five. Well, what do we have? Four years, maybe if 48, it starts officially. Yeah. So so I, I think I think what what the difference perhaps is, is in 1890. I would probably call that the most most natural patriotic period in U.S. history. I think people were really, really patriotic, and I don't think you had to foster it too much. I think by the, the after the Second World War, there was this real fear of foreign belief systems, foreign politics, maybe even foreign agents. You know, that was a problem in the 1919 era, too. Foreign agents fostering anti-Americanism. You know, today we would look at a lot of this stuff as just good old fashioned labor agitation. But th at the time, it was often seen as communist agitation. So so I think the top down element of it may have been an attempt to freeze in amber some mm. of the ideas that were homegrown naturally in the 1890s, 1900. I mean, that, and again, off the top of my head. But but I when I was a kid, I recall this being a much more hit you with a stick kind of thing than something that welled up from within naturally in all Americans. That's a fair point. I do. I mean, I, and I, it's, it's, this is always, you know, we could be wrong. We're just, we're just fans of the historians, not the, you know, but it, it, it did seem though that, you know, when, 
I, I look at the fact that that Charles Lindbergh formally ends the America First Committee and volunteers for, I guess, what would have been the Proto Air Force after Pearl Harbor. And that what, what is what a signal that is. And you had, you know, a whole movement in the 1930s that were like, no more world wars for us. As soon as we're attacked in Hawaii, not even on the mainland, the leader of that, the person that we most associate with, you call it isolationism, suddenly says, I support FDR, I'm, you know, I'm going to volunteer. So I think that in the beginning of World War II, or at least America's intervention in World War II, there was a sense after we were attacked of a kind of national pride. But I do concede your point that we had you know, a, a, a kind of a, a wave of paranoia and repression of people who, you know, probably who clearly didn't deserve it during the second Red Scare. And that probably created an environment for the following in, until the 60s that made it seem like we were more patriotic than maybe we really were. It was more compelled than it was just a sort of natural. Yeah. Well, and, and I, I see now again, the devil's advocate comes out in me yeah. because I do want to point it was we were a very patriotic country at the yes. time. I mean, to say, I, I'm, you know, and, and I mean, compared to today, it would have seemed uber patriotic and it almost would have seemed like we were in lockstep. But to those people, if you had two percent or three percent of the people not feeling <laughs> that it almost seemed like, an you know, an enemy within. I don't know how you could have had between two and three thousand people, American service people killed at Pearl Harbor by an enemy force without everybody rallying to the flag. I just Fair don't enough. see how that could yeah. The better counterfactual, though, is to wonder, and I've often wondered myself, if Hitler doesn't make one of the greatest mistakes in, in geopolitical history and declare war on the United States, does the United States get involved in the war in Europe? Because there was a feeling of, hey, they didn't attack us. And there were quite a few mm. people, Lindbergh is a perfect example, who would, have, who would have been the first people to say, hey, they didn't attack us, right. the Japanese. And what's more, to declare a war on Germany is to, is to take our eye off the ball in defeating the people that actually did attack us. So I feel like that's one of the more interesting counterfactuals, even if we were fighting a sort of pseudo undeclared war against the Germans with Japanese with, with German submarines on the eastern coast and lend lease and all that stuff. Mm. Yes. Well that's okay. So let me closing question and thank you so much for your time, Dan Carlin. What are the lessons now that we should take from the Roman Republic? And it's it seems like it's a lazy analogy that, oh, we're gonna are we destined to repeat their mistakes and become, you know, and, and, and end our republic and, and just become this great big empire. I mean, Pat Buchanan wrote that famous book, Republic, Not an Empire. But what, what I would, I'd love to get your thoughts. Like what at this, in 2022 America, what are the lessons that we should keep our eye out, you know, that we can learn maybe from the mistakes of the Romans? I don't think there's anything we can learn from the empire. I think there's a lot of things maybe we right. can learn. I agree with you on that. Yeah. The thing of it, so it depends on how you see Caesar. Right. That's that's it's it's Caesar is I I, now now you're you're getting into a long running desire of mine to better understand what was going on there, because the propaganda that we have from that era makes it so difficult to sift through and try to figure out whether Caesar's a hero or a villain whether he's motivated by his own desires for power and authority or whether he's, you know, trying to put an end to tons of civil war and internal bloodshed. Remember, Caesar is the inheritor 
of generations of problems that, that started with the Gracchi and before that, yeah. right? Tiberius and Caius Gracchi and, and Saturninus and all those people are are forebears to Caesar. And by the time you get to Marius and Sulla, you know, they're they're putting up execution lists of their political enemies whenever they take over towns. So Sulla As you pointed out, Sulla said to about a young Caesar. That guy's going to be a problem. You know, you know, watch that. Watch, watch the man with the loose toga or whatever. Yeah, they, right. Yeah. Well, to, truthfully, I do think he was one of the more interesting figures in all time. When, when you find out that Caesar was able to to dictate three letters simultaneously from his litter, well, I mean. There was something really special about him from an intelligence yeah. and energy standpoint. But people like that are dangerous, especially in dangerous times when when a guy I mean, crossing the Rubicon is one of those really interesting moments in history. But depending on how you see Caesar, I think the lessons that you take away from the Republic are different. I will say that my worst fears are that we're not that far from this era corresponding somewhat to that era. Mm-hmm. I don't know is whom, because I don't know how I view those people, right? Mm-hmm. But I will say that we're in as dangerous of a time as this country's ever seen. And I don't know how, you know, it's interesting because we talked earlier about how would the founding fathers learn from the the tragic flaws inherent and built into the Roman system. I think what we're living through now is exactly the sort of lessons a country trying to model themselves on us in the future and trying right. to avoid our mistakes would would look at. And I, and I don't know what the answer is. I just feel like, you know, we're living through a very Maybe interesting you could time. expand on that. Why, why do you think that we're in this perilous moment? I mean, I obviously, I mean, I'm assuming Trump is part of it, but I would love to kind of hear your thoughts on that. Well, it's interesting because Trump, in my mind, is a symptom, right? I mean, yes. you know, you don't get Hitler unless you have the the anger and 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 terrible disruption in post-First World War Germany, right? Hitler couldn't right. have come to power in 1912. But he was a unique individual in the sense that he determined the direction it was going to go. So he had the opportunity to take power, and then the direction follows in line with who his own proclivities, you know, what, what's involved with the guy personally, his own view. The anti-Semitism thing is a is a specific thing that's so weird about the whole deal. So I think there's an interaction between the times we live in where people are willing to support a guy like Trump who couldn't have become president in the 1950s and Trump's proclivities as an individual, right? Is his own weird, unique quirks and the, the way he is. But those two things are pinging off each other, right? Hmm. In a way that's determining a direction that we would not have gone in had some other person seized the moment and taken advantage of, of, of this moment in history where we could elect a person from outside the system who was playing on the justifiable upsettedness that's not a word but you know what i mean with the way things are that opens the door right to something and i've been asking for an outsider for years i take a lot of flack because i was asking for an outsider for years then we got one but it wasn't the one i wanted and people saying well how picky are you going to be well that's like saying if you ask for an outsider and it's hitler you have to be okay with that because you asked for an outsider but do you I, do you I, think that trump is it's fair to compare trump to hitler no i think he's more okay. of a mussolini-ish character i don't think he's mm-hmm. I really don't think he's, this is going to come off as weird. I don't think he's serious enough to be right. a Hitler. I don't think he's got a philosophy that is, 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 I mean, Hitler wrote a book, right? Hitler yeah. wrote a book, actually, <laughs> right. and big, long books. I mean, I mean, he, for, for lack of a better word, he had a twisted philosophy, but there was a philosophy and he came up with a lot of it, right? Right. I think. I think Trump plays the the ball where it lays on the green a lot of the time, right? 
And so I think I think it's a sort of a different approach. Mm-hmm. I, so so I, I don't think it's the same, but I think I think the sense that I mean, look, I have less of a problem with Trump than I do with with people that can't see the the what's the word I'm looking for the parallels, and, and that we have a lot of parallels with the the post First World War era and the breakdowns in societal norms and all, you know, it's what you were talking about. I think when you're, when you're talking about these, these cultural questions that used to anchor us to each other a little bit more closely than we are now. But when you break those things down, when the e pluribus unum idea falls apart, then what do we have? And then if, if, and, and then who steps into the vacuum to exploit whatever the new conditions are? So, so look, if it hadn't been Trump, I think somebody's going to step into that vacuum because for the same, I mean, it's almost another analogy with the Roman Republic in the sense that there are people that would look at this as an opportunity for personal advancement. We have a lot of politicians who are trying to, you know, wet their fingers, lick it, stick it up in the wind and see which way sure. it's going and try to, to benefit from that. Well, the wind has never quite felt like the wind feels now, you know? I think there's a lot of people too. It's it, The only part that I've enjoyed in this whole thing is watching the political class who, who work so hard at hedging so that they yes. can break either way, depending on how things go, being forced to choose a, a, at the fork in the road moment and live with, with their choices, right? I think Mitch McConnell's a good example of that, right? A mm-hmm. guy who who's trying to figure out what the right move to make is here. And he's never quite sure, but I think that's indicative of the times in which we live. And so I, in my lifetime, I used to say, if you'd asked me 10 years ago, that the late 1960s, early 1970s was the most disruptive time we'd had in the country since the, since the U S civil war. Mm. I think now it's the most disruptive time we've had since the U S civil war and, and the future's uncertain and the end is always near as the doors song said, right? Well, let me just, I want to just ask, are, do you still, because I, I have to tell you, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a big Dan Carlin fan. So I have listened to a lot of your common senses from the 2000s. And you were, in my view, a principled critic of an overweening uh, national security bureaucracy and surveillance state. And I these, and I am too. So my, I mean, are we are we the one thing i don't like trump i agree with you that he's a demagogue but the one thing that i think is maybe potentially a good thing is that he's he's sort of making it okay to say why do we have this enormous kind of you know secret state that is capable of turning an individual a citizen's life upside down whether it's the fbi you know and these kinds of things now again he's not a he's not not a reliable narrator in, on anything. So I don't want to put too much stock in it, but I do think that if you had to, if, if it is a choice, if it's a fork in the road, I, I, w- I guess I reject the choice. I don't want to have to side with like, you know, MSNBC that has on former FBI officials exclaiming, you know, every time they get, you know, a, a leak of some investigation that it's the, the end is coming and sort of cheering on, giving them more and more powers on the other hand, I, you know, obviously think that Trump is so is a toxic figure and that he, he's, you know, he won't accept the results of elections he loses and we can go on. Well, I think so I, I think you just know you've nailed my 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 great dichotomy in my life, which is yeah. a guy who opposed the system 
And then the person who comes in as a result of the anger and dissatisfaction with that system is more dangerous than the system that you opposed. So does that put me in the position then of supporting a system that for so long I was an opponent of? That's why you throw up your hands and you go, okay, well, what do you do now? You know, and and, and listen, all these, and that's how, that's what I mean about Trump playing the ball where it lays sort of, I mean, these are things that people had criticized forever. And from both sides of the aisle, I mean, you you talked about Buchanan's book, A Republic, Not an Empire. I had Buchanan on the show. He was one of the first guests we ever had on Common Sense. Oh, really? To talk about that book. It wasn't even as well. And I remember it's a funny story, not that you have time for it, but this was podcasting was so new that he didn't know what a podcast was and he didn't know who I was. And he was he was scared to do it. And so he had a handler next to him, I found out later, whose job it was to tell him he had to leave. If within five minutes he realized he'd made a terrible mistake coming on the show. But as soon as he found out we liked the book, he was okay. But I'm not a Pat Buchanan fan either. But but that that's a perfect example of how people of different political persuasions can sort of say, okay, we see the same problem. We have different solutions to that problem and different and, and different examples of how we would address it. But I mean, another one's the trade deals. Trump was against NAFTA. I'm against NAFTA. But but does that mean that you support somebody who doesn't have a real connection to the constitutional protections that keep us all safe because right. you agree on a right. deal? On the other hand, if you disagree with the guy who disagrees with NAFTA, does that end up empowering the people that like NAFTA and want to have another one? So I, I think this is why people like yours truly have been so affected by something like this. Because it's a fork in the road and I want to go up the middle, you know, and full of it's a giant briar patch up the middle. There's no place yeah. for me. So, so I think I think it's all those things that you were mentioning that open. You know, we had talked about the First World War's disruption opening the door to a Hitler and a lot of other people. Right. We, Hitler's the most obvious example, but there are yeah. other it opened up the door in 1917. The First World War opened up the door to Bolshevism in Russia, which dictated my whole youth until 1991. Right. At the same time. The direction you go, once that person's in there and, and the prescriptions that they make because of it, that doesn't necessarily go in the direction you want either. So so tr- Trump's, Trump was made possible by our dissatisfaction with these things. But the fact that he's able to articulate that and the people in, I don't know what you would even call it, the... the what, what, what's is there a good term for the status quo government, the Pelosi's, the Mitch McConnell's, the old line people? Mm-hmm. They like those kind of things and they like them principally for reasons that their contributors like them and all these kinds, of, which is the main problem in my mind with the government for so long. We have a corruption problem. Let, let's turn to somebody like like Huey Long, right? Because Huey yes. Long, is, he's a perfect example of something that would have played off the same sorts of dissatisfactions. Huey Long had a really interesting message at the time he came around, and it resonated with a lot of people. The problem, though, was Huey Long, right? And and the fact that, right. that, that, that he came across to a lot of people as somebody that looked, I mean, what did Franklin Roosevelt? He, Franklin Roosevelt said the two most dangerous men in America were General Douglas MacArthur and Huey Long. So if Huey Long got, he had a, a share our wealth program, was what he That's called right. it. That's right. Every man a king was his slogan. These were very dangerous things during the Depression because the Depression made everybody really open to a bunch of radical messages that if times were better, they wouldn't have been open to. But which person is going to capture the electorate with the obvious stick your finger up in the wind message, right? In the Depression, everybody wants relief. If you say, I'm going to give you relief, you might not be too particular about the particulars. And I, right. I think I, I think this is an example where we're at a time period where the consensus 
the bipartisan consensus on everything from foreign policy to the economy to everything else was breaking down, what, you know, if nature abhors a vacuum and in politics even more, what fills that gap? 50 years ago, the politicians, the status quo politicians themselves would have filled it by moving, changing, morphing, Mm -hmm. right? But the, but, but, well, that didn't happen this time. And and we got an outsider, which I'd always wanted, but we didn't get an outsider. Of, and I wanted wisdom, not corruption. I wanted constitutionality. I, you know, I didn't get any <laughs> of the except for the fact that it wasn't somebody who was already a part of the political system. But it's not just me. I feel like the whole country's in this same. We're all in this together. That's the one thing if we wanted to tie this whole conversation up in a bow with what you started with. I think we need to remember that. And and I don't know how to reinstill this idea that we're all in this together, that, you know, people talk to me all the time about we might just be better if we broke up, if we separate. No. Right? Well, but here's what they don't think about. One, there's no geographical boundary like there was in 1860, where you could just say, OK, we'll cut the line right here at the Mason-Dixon line. And it's a real easy separation unless you live in Kentucky or Missouri or Kansas. But because we're divided by precincts now. But the other problem with that is, is that if, if what you're worried about isn't something cut and dried, like whether or not you have slaves, but instead you're worried about people's ideas and their mm. ideologies, what I keep trying to tell people is if you still plan on having a free country when you break away from this country, well, guess what? Your kids are going to read and they're going to be exposed to ideas, including all these ideas you ran away from. And if you don't want liberals in your country or the other side doesn't want conservatives in their countries, guess what? Your kids are going to want to piss you off like every generation of kids has always wanted to do with their parents. They're going to read the kind of authors you don't want them to read. And in a generation or two, you're going to be full of the kind of people you tried to get away from all over again, unless you don't have a free country, right? And then what did you do all that Right. What did you break away? What did you perhaps have a civil war over if in two generations you're back to square one? You know, that's a great way to think about it. And I think it's a great kind of exclamation point on our conversation, because when we talk about American national characteristics, I would hope that one of them is that we contain multitudes like the Whitman line. Yeah. Yeah. And that we are, you know, a nation that produces Las Vegas and New Orleans and also utopian, you know, ascetic communities in the state of Utah. We have all kinds of people and we can, we've all, we've managed to live together. And maybe that's you know an idea that we should get back to. I had a political science professor who happened to be from, from Germany and he fought in the yeah. Wehrmacht, which I thought was so interesting. He was an old guy when I knew him, Henry Brompton was his name. And he said, every country has a right foot and a left foot and you can't walk without both of them. Yeah. And I thought that was an interesting line. Yeah. Well, listen, thank you so much, Dan Carlin. This was a real honor and a thrill for me. And I really appreciate you taking the time. I appreciate you having me. And it's nice to finally meet you. Yeah, absolutely. This has been The Reeducation with Eli Lake, a nebulous production. Please find us wherever you find your podcasts. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. It helps other people find the show and makes us feel really good about what we're doing.